Oh, would you look at that? There's a new episode of the Blackcast on my phone, ready to play right now. Listening to Blackcast. I don't want to watch what's on the TV. iTunes app put on the BC. Podcast on, no talking to me. Listening to Blackcast. Keep up on comics and movies. New phone ring, I answer hoodies. I can't talk, call back if you please. Listening to Blackcast. Don't know what you are missing. Damn fine show hosted by Christian. He's just dope, no ass I'm kissing. Listen into Blackcast. Click subscribe on this podcast. You won't be the first, but don't you be last. Listen while you pumping your gas. Listen into Blackcast. On this episode, it's Jean Grey talking about the things that she say. So distracted, didn't feed Bay. Listen into Blackcast. Met this girl, she smiled in my face Black cast in Chile to my place Had one beer, she brought a whole case Listen into Black Cast Cops knock on the door and listen Black cast on, they think I'm Christian Cops ran off, now I ain't trippin' Listen into Black Cast My point is, listen to this show Don't need me to tell you it's dope Rock so hard like Johnny Lithgow Listen into Black Cast Oh yeah, that's the Black Cast, it's on the Ghost Twin TV or whatever. Oh, it's not. Oh, it's on AfterBuzz TV, that's right. That's that guy, Christian, you rock! Alright, several taxes had to go take care of some business. But I'm here to say, have a nice day. And listen to the damn show. Welcome! To the Blattcast, yes indeed, Christian Blatt. I'm back here for the first time in a few weeks. It's been a little while since we've given you one of these, an audio episode, but please remember, there's always new content, as my friend Flobo Boys would say, new content every week. You can get your new content on the Blattcast YouTube channel. That, of course, just like this podcast, spelled B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T, including some shows that we've uh, temporarily relocated there while AfterBuzz and the Popcorn Talk networks are on hiatus. That includes Marvel Movie Talk, which I suspect a lot of Blattcast Nation, that's you if you're listening right now, you didn't realize you'd relocated to the nation, but you're there. Welcome. We enjoy having you with us. But uh, if you're part of Blattcast Nation, I think you would enjoy uh, Marvel Movie Talk. Also, uh, sometimes our friend Zia's on there, and uh, that may or may not be a good thing. But uh, if uh, we, if you were a fan of Agents of Shield, we did uh, the after show for that series up through the series finale last week. Uh, that was at the Blackcast YouTube channel. And somehow, if you don't have enough politics in your life, we are doing the Trump report over there, and we are going to be recapping the uh, political conventions for better or for worse. <laughs> Uh, You'll get all of that if you subscribe. You go to YouTube, type in B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. What you'll also get, there's more, you'll also usually get to see video versions of the interviews that I do right here on the Blackcast. You'll see video versions, including the one you're about to hear right now. Now, who is that guest? Well, let me tell you. Oh, would you like me to tell you now? All right, I'll tell you. I'll be chatting with Robert Duncan in a moment. He was with Cream Magazine from 1974 through 1981 and was the managing editor of that magazine from 1975 to 1976. He also wrote for some other magazines, which we'll talk about, but most significantly, he is known as, quote, the world's leading authority on the rock group Kiss, unquote. I swear this is not a Kiss interview, although I always feel like we could be due for another one of those, but I promise you, Each and every one of you are going to love what Robert has to say. There's a fantastic story that I know you all appreciate about a party he went to. He's also got a new book coming out called Loudmouth, and it'll be out October 6th, I believe. So if you message me with a screen grab of your pre-order of the book, you could indeed randomly be selected to win some Blackcast merch. Now, we don't have a lot of merch, but we do have a couple of items left. Maybe. Just maybe as we get ever so close to episode 400, we might uh, break out some new merch. At the rate we're going, we'll get to episode 500 by the end of the year. Uh, No, it'll actually be very soon. But anyway, without further ado, let's say hello to our guests. Joining me now is Robert Duncan, who is with Cream Magazine from 1974 to 1981 and managing editor of that magazine from 75 to 76. He has a new book out called Loudmouth. 
first of all, thank you, Robert, for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Christian. Back at you. I'm obviously uh, not young enough that I shouldn't remember Cream Magazine, but I, I don't. I was born in 1976, and I know it mostly by the, the legend of what it was. And I think it's important to kind right. of give our audience an overview of what it was about Cream Magazine that set it apart from, well, I, firstly, from Rolling Stone. Like, what's the big difference between Rolling Stone and Cream? I actually wrote for both. I mean, I wrote much more extensively for Cream. But so where Rolling Stone, uh, you know, aspired to a certain respectability, Cream aspired to disrespect disrespectability it you know it was a magazine that was not afraid of making fun of rock stars and in fact the idea the very idea of rock stars was kind of called into question and um and it you know you know it started in 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 69 and rolling stone started in san francisco and uh, no doubt that Detroit informed a lot of the kind of punkish attitude. And as, as you may know, Dave Marsh, who was the first editor of Cream, uh, maintains that he invented punk, the phrase punk rock uh, in the pages of Cream. So um, it, was, it was, you know, punk versus mainstream. Um, yeah, and, and obviously and, being in Detroit, you do have that sensibility. You know, it's a lot It's a lot more uh, Iggy and the Stooges than it is, you know, I mean, obviously the Grateful Dead immediately come to mind when you talk about the Bay Area, you know, and yeah, yeah and it, it always seemed like, it, it, you know, when I've read materials from it, I mean, and obviously uh, people know you from your association with it, but I would say that uh, Lester Bangs is sort of this this writer that kind of transcends the magazine, you know, in and of itself. I think people who maybe haven't even read him have at least heard his name. And yeah. if you're anyone who's familiar with him, that'll kind of tell you where Cream was coming from. What I liked uh, just sort of putting the notes together, it was something that I remembered, but he was fired from Rolling Stone because he didn't like, I think, a Can't Heat album, at least according to what the internet tells me. <laughs> right. I, I yeah, wouldn't yeah. trust somebody who did like a Can't Heat album, but that's just me. <laughs> he was brilliant. He was, and, and, uh, and he had a great name too, you know? Oh yeah. Uh, and, and that was his real name. Well, his name was, his, his last name was Banks. His first name, his real first name was Leslie, but it, they call, he was called Lester his whole life. Uh, but uh, yeah, he, he was, he was, he didn't work for Rolling Stone, but he was, he was taken off the freelancer list after he slagged off uh, canned heat. And, you know, it, uh, a few years later, uh, when Dave Marsh, who was the, again, the original editor of Cream, went to become record review editor of Rolling Stone, he gave me work when I had gone freelance. I'd left Cream. And I reviewed those first, the, the Kiss solo albums sure. uh, when they came out, uh, assigned by Dave. And um, so it was a pretty big review. And Dave edited it, and it was, you know, it was going ahead, and suddenly... It was it was too juvenile for him to review, and too you know it was too cream for Rolling Stone, and and then of course we learn later he also hates Kiss. I rewatched it a little while ago when I knew I was going to talk to you, but a few years ago I saw you on the 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 Kiss podcast, Three Sides of the Coin, and I remember you talking about how you wrote that, and right. John Wenner hated Kiss so much, and I I think that you have the idea that there's like the oddly enough there shouldn't be a rock and roll intelligentsia but there was and those are the people who ran and still run to some extent the rock and roll hall of fame so obviously that was just like yeah they're they're not they don't belong in our club and uh i think that uh the interesting thing would have been that you couldn't have possibly written four glowing reviews of those solo albums you probably would have proven his point that uh <laughs> at least one of them's not very good Maybe all of yeah. them, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I I don't even remember. I don't know what the you know. Yeah. I found the review recently, but I forget where I've stashed it in my computer. But um, uh, yeah, you know, I was my 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 interactions with the my relationship to Kiss was always one of uh, tongue in cheek and and kind of teasing them, and uh, so I I'm sure it had all that kind of wise guy stuff in it. Well, I, I do love that uh, you, 
you have this book, which is, I guess, the, the first book about Kiss that came out in 1978. And I, I do love that you gave yourself the title of the world's leading authority on the rock group Kiss, which is a very specific title. And it, it was always worded, not just leading authority on Kiss. No, the world's leading authority on the rock oh, group Kiss. Absolutely. Uh, just well, saying you were, that, that meant you must be, right? Well, exactly. Exactly. And I really was, I was reaching for the awkwardness of all those extra words. I thought <laughs> that kind of, I thought that was funnier. So, uh, uh, but you, I still get people talking to me about that. Oh, you, you are the world's leading authority. We live in the age where everybody's an expert and uh, you just knew before everybody else. It's like, yeah, if I give myself this title, you know, I worked for a radio show for a long time and nobody was my boss. So instead of being the producer, one day I just started signing everything that I was the executive producer. There was nobody to tell me I wasn't the executive producer. And it just sounds yeah. better, you know? Uh, so, and that, oh, that line on my resume says executive producer because I felt like, you know what? I did it long enough. I must be the executive producer, you know? You well, actually- um, you actually, It's a world's leading authority in the Rockford kit. Hey, and I think that that might be your whole, like, not that there isn't plenty more that you could put on it, but that might be all you need. It's like, well, if he's the leading authority, well, you should really talk to him, you know? And who would have thought back in 1978, I didn't really think that cream was going to persist and uh, the kiss book would persist, but I guess I should be thankful. Yeah. Well, I think uh, that obviously, you know, in, in that time, there wasn't a lot out there and you had already written about them and, and I guess you'd, uh, you'd met them and I know that you saw them early on. So what, what was your thinking of kiss when you first saw them and how did that evolve throughout the course of actually taking the time to write a book about the band? Yeah, the book I wrote pretty fast, so there wasn't a lot of evolution. But uh, I mean, you know, I was horrified when I first saw them. I was like, what? They were opening, I don't, I can't, I wish I could remember who it was, so they were opening for, but it was in at Winterland in San Francisco. I, I live now in the Bay Area again, but I lived here for about a year in, in the early 70s. Uh, Cream, I was, by that time, no, it was before I went to Cream, so I was get, just getting to know them, and they asked me, would I go interview this band, this new band, and, and, and go to the show? And, and so I went to dinner with Bill O'Coin, uh, who was a nice guy, and, uh, and then we went to the show at Winterland, and they had all the lights, and, you know, they had some pyro, and, and I'm like, you know, I was like, I thought, well, this is showbiz. This isn't rock and roll. So um, I was horrified. But when I met, you know, b before the show, I had met them and they were all nice. And it, w it happened to be the moment when uh, Paul was late for the interview and he came in and he had just gotten that um, rose tattoo, uh, uh, his famous rose tattoo at, I believe, Lyle Tuttle's, where I later went to get, a, right. get my tattoo. And, yeah. Um, and so I was horrified. I thought they were, I thought, what is this bullshit? This is not, you know. <laughs> this isn't rock, this is showbiz. Yeah, uh, so I, I think that uh, if somebody had told you then that nearly 50 years later, they would uh, be embarked on their second or possibly third farewell tour, uh, you would have been like, no, there's, there's no chance. No, I would have. No, I would have fully believed it. <laughs> I mean, I thought the world was going to hell. So I thought, all right, well, I mean, and I knew from, from when I was writing um, that I, it was like, when I was freelance writing after I left Cream, I knew that, you know, I could always sell an article that was about Kiss. Sure. So I, I had a, my whole shtick was to do a, an, a negative article one week and a positive article the next week in a different publication. And uh, I, I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, putting the notes together, I, I saw that you sometimes would say that they're literally the greatest band, and then the next week <laughs> that they're destroying rock and roll. And uh, right. by the way, you might be right in both cases. You know, there yeah. there was something great about them, and you know, I, I I grew up in the era when they didn't have the makeup on, and they were you know a very different incarnation of the band. But right. I always I always liked them, and I, I liked the older stuff. I was actually horrified by them when I was a kid. When I was little, they were on a PBS show called. 321 contact about, yeah, about sure. stage lighting and stuff and uh i'm just like uh, the the one with the kitty cat face is all right but uh i, I think that uh, gene simmons definitely made me cry so <laughs> it, it took a little while for me to come around but you know i was just a little bit too young because they obviously spoke to a younger audience and there wasn't that much information out there not only did we not know what they looked like 
you didn't really know that much. So you come out with a book in 1978 and it's like the kiss book. When I'm sitting down to talk to you, I, I Google your name and I find out all this stuff that I, that I remembered from past interviews, things that I knew about you. And then a, a bunch of other stuff, you know, that took like 20 minutes. Well, if you wanted to know about kiss in 1978, I mean, what were you going to do? You know, like hope that yeah. the new issue of cream magazine had something else about them because Rolling Stone sure wouldn't. So yeah. what was the reaction to the book? Was it just like, almost like they didn't care what it, what was in it because they were glad that there was a kiss book. The readers. Well, we, the funny thing is, so we, I saw so at this time I left cream and I'm in New York and I'm a freelance writer and you're you know, struggling as freelance writers do today. Uh, but so struggling and we were broke. And, um, and I remember, so I got this deal for the, for this kiss book, this guy, a friend, this guy, Richard Robinson, who's a producer and a writer, he wrote for Cream. He's married to a woman named Lisa Robinson, who was a famous rock writer. And uh, he, at a press party for Ozzy Osbourne, where we went so we could get free booze and, and food, uh, Richard said to me, hey, an editor called me, he's looking for somebody to write a, a biography of Kiss. Uh, so he gave me the guy's number. I called the guy. We did a deal in a real, was, you know, not much money. But I thought, okay, this is going to bail me out. And um, the publishing industry is so antiquated, and it still is. It's so fucked up. Uh, it takes you six months to get a, a royalty statement. I got my first royalty statement, and I thought, this book has got to be selling, right? And we had zero on it. Zero. Didn't make it nickel. <laughs> and I thought, okay, how? I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent or anything. Six months later, it was like it went through the roof. That book sold like... 300,000 copies in the wow. States. It sold over, it sold in Japan. It sold in England. It, it set us up for like about three years, but it only, it, let, let me put it this way. It only took me three years to figure out how to spend all that money. <laughs> <laughs> and the interesting thing is that the, the book is available again uh, digitally. So people can find it on, on Amazon and uh, well, it's available in print. Oh, it's even I, on print. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. A few years ago, I mean, I, don't, I guess it's available digitally. I, a few years ago, a guy called me and said, oh, I want to do an audiobook of your Kiss book. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the rights if you, if you, just, if you do another print book, because the sure. rights had reverted to me. And, uh, and he's like, oh, you know, I want to do it. So, so I, somehow I was a hard ass and I didn't do it. I thought, well, I'll put out of my own print book <laughs> because Amazon has that Lulu and you can do kind of printing yeah. on demand and all that. So, I did, I did that. And so that's available on Amazon in print. And it's, it's kind of a facsimile of the original book, except I didn't want to pay the photographer. I didn't want to have to buy the photographs again. And uh, so somebody in my office for my birthday one year had done a picture of me as Gene Simmons holding my teacup. I, I drink tea at work and, and, um, I thought, oh, fuck, that's my cover. So that's in the little circle on the cover. That is, uh, you'll see me as Gene Simmons. People, I figured people won't. They have no idea who this is. It just kind of looks like Gene Simmons. Yeah. So it'll, <laughs> it'll work. But yeah, so that's out there. Yeah, so that, so that book is still out there. And yeah. it's, a, it's a snapshot of uh, Kiss in 1978, which is, it's, a, it's an interesting time because it is, uh, as, as fans of the band know, that, uh, I mean, the wheels were already coming off by 1978 uh, due to yeah. those four solo albums. But, I mean, it really went off the rails after that, you know. So yeah. it is kind of like a way to remember, like, yeah, this is them at, at their height. It's interesting when, you know, you're able to kind of capture a band at that moment, you know. I mean, there's, yeah. there's only so many of those, you know. A lot of times... You know, and especially from that era, you know, there's, I think that like Van Halen with David Lee Roth, there's, there's no like, like legitimate, like full concerts, there's bootlegs, but they don't have anything. And you're just like, well, how could that be? Even when you knew that they were popular, you think you would have filmed it. So it, it is, it's such a different mindset than even just a few years later, you know, when yeah, I think if, yeah. if if Van Halen started if like five years later, there would have at least been one MTV concert that we would have and and be able to look at. So, uh, being able to to yeah. see that part of Kiss is, is great. Now, obviously, I would assume that the book was made without the involvement of of the band or all coin management. But the fact that it was published means that you didn't break any laws in writing it, right? <laughs> no, there's all sorts of. No, it was it was strictly unauthorized as they, as they wanted it to be, and, and those guys would not have authorized a book at that point. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, it was published by Popular Library, which was a big paperback imprint firm. I forget they were owned by Warner's or something at the time. And uh, well, you know what? When I first when they they assigned me an editor and I went to visit this editor. And by the way, at this point, I'm like 22 years old, and and so and the editors go. I had the manuscript and it was all marked up, and and I'm like what the fuck and we're going through it and i'm going well you you're, you don't get it you know i had put in i had made up sounds to to communicate how the guitars sounded and i had i had made up names for the band members and and the editor was just like what is this shit you know get this shit out of here and i'm like no that's the whole deal you know um and so she she finally said all right fuck it go and uh, <laughs> so they didn't actually edit anything in the end in, in a moment, we'll talk about your uh, new book, Loudmouth, which is a novel. And uh, yeah, no problem. As, as you can see, we're talking to Robert Duncan now. Uh, you know, it's it's a little bit uh, cheating because I did rewatch that interview that you did with the guys at Three Sides of the Coin. But what I yeah. remembered from that interview is what I'm about to ask you about right now. Yeah. This party you went to, Eliza Minnelli's house. And, yeah. Uh, you know, my my day job, I work for Dennis Miller, the comedian, and uh, oh, okay. we get closer to the book being published. Uh, he will probably want to talk to you for 20 minutes just about that party, uh, <laughs> because that is so up his alley from, you know, for, again, you want to talk about a snapshot from a moment in time. I think that that is like, what, like 1980, late 70s, somewhere in there. So uh, I want to, I want you to explain how you got to attend Eliza Minnelli. It wasn't Liza Minnelli's birthday party, right? It was it was no, no, her husband's. Yeah. So uh, talk about that and who was there. And uh, there's eventually a Kiss connection. I people who check out this show, some of them are Kiss fans, but I don't know that everybody's going to go the level that I do, where I'm going to you know regularly watch a, an entire Kiss podcast. So I wanted to. I'm, I'm basically stealing the story that I heard you tell there because I think it's such a great story. No, I tell it a lot. So because because I like it, <laughs> but my because I have lots of good stories from this era. Because my childhood friend uh who i went to grade school with one of my oldest and best friends he um he became a stage manager on broadway at, following in the footsteps of his father and he stage managed for liza minnelli's show and this led to him getting married to liza minnelli and he was the only straight guy she married uh and that's that's from her uh but uh, so so I mean, he was a guy kind of up from, you know, he wasn't, didn't come from a wealthy background or anything. So he was like, oh yeah, this is, this, this kicks ass. So when he turned 30, he said to, he said to Eliza, he said, okay, I want you, they were living in a swank, you know, Upper East Side apartment in New York. And when he, uh, when he turned 30, he said to Eliza, I want you to invite everybody, you know, in Hollywood, just, just everybody. And we'll get them up here to the apartment and that'll, that'll be the party. So you know, we'd been hanging out there for a while. So we saw all the, um, well, we saw the, you know, fishbowl of cocaine and all that shit. It, we even saw where it was hidden when it wasn't in the fishbowl. God, it, this party was unbelievable. It was people like, um, I mean, it was the whole Martin Scorsese, De Niro was there, Harvey Keitel was there, um, Lucille Ball. And and at one point I see there's, there's the, this, Gregory Peck is sitting on a, on a, just a chair talking to somebody. And I'm like, so I'm a wise, I've always been a wise guy. I'm a wise guy with rock stars. And I'm, I guess I'm a wise guy with movie stars too. So I'm like, fuck, I got to say hello to Gre Atticus Finch, Gregory Peck. Yeah, of course. Come on. <laughs> so I'm on beers back and kind of getting my courage up. And I go over, I go, you know, Mr. Peck, uh, he's sitting down. I said, oh, nice to, nice to meet you. Introduce myself. And he stands up. And I've met a lot of movie stars, and almost all of them are little short, petite people. Uh, and that's, I think, what, and rock stars, too. That's, that's what kind of, I think, helps motivate them to become famous. And Gregory Peck stands up, and he just, it just keeps going. He's like, you know, 6'4", 6'3", and he has this giant, booming voice, like, like Gregory Peck. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, holy shit. So that, that, was, that was fantastic. The story kind of could go on forever. Uh, it includes me uh, jumping on their couch and calling long distance because long distance costs money. I'm calling all my friends saying, guess where I am? <laughs> guess who's in the room here? And at one point, this, this child walked by me. 
And I'm like, the fuck brought their child to the party? That's just weird. And, you know, I'm studying this child, looked like a, like a teenager, maybe 14, 15. And it turned out, and he, he's short too. And it just, again, petite. Yeah. And, uh, and it turns out it's Al Pacino. <laughs> he came from Broadway where he was in his stage makeup. And I guess he had his hair dyed or something. Right. And it was like, <laughs> that's fucking Al Pacino. And he's like five feet tall. And I thought he was a kid. And then they brought Lucille Ball in. And I say they brought because there was two guys kind of propping her up on the yeah. other side. I think she had a few more months to live. And, uh, but it, it just went on and on. But at one point, I'm standing near the kind of entryway chatting with Harvey Keitel and Meatloaf. And, <laughs> and what I loved about the Meatloaf thing was Meatloaf was scarfing hors d'oeuvres. And his wife is going, what's his name? You know, Adair. Or what's it? I can't remember his name. She's I going, forget his name, yeah. Meat. You can't, you can't, you got to stop eating that stuff because he was trying to lose weight because meatloaf was pretty fat. Sure. And uh, so his wife was like slapping his hand and I just thought, oh, that's this, I love that. And um, so we're, we're chatting and I hear like a knocking at the door. Nobody else hears it. And so I, I slide over to the front door and, and I open the door. And now let me, the background is that I have this relationship with Gene Simmons where I make fun of him and I, I make fun of him to his face. And I, I think he kind of likes it. Uh, I haven't seen him in a few years, so maybe, maybe he didn't like it. But uh, So I open the door and who's there but Gene Simmons. And Gene points at me like, what the fuck are you doing here? And I'm, I'm pointing back at him like, what the fuck are you doing here? And, and we kind of go through that uh, jocularly for a moment. And then he says, well, let me, I'll introduce you to my date. And of course it was Diana Ross. And you know, there was no mistaking Diana Ross. She had big hair and her giant smile. And uh, she was just absolutely Diana Ross. So, and then they came in. So they were there. That was, and I, I always thought Gene Simmons must've been like, what? I mean, he just really must have been mystified that I was there. The party, I'll tell you the ending of the party goes beyond the kiss thing. So it goes on for a long time. And, and uh, so my wife and I, or I think she was my girlfriend at the time, were there. It's 5 a.m. And they're finally trying to sweep me out because now I'm just totally lit and I'm just carrying <laughs> on. One of the things I used to like to do when I would get drunk, uh, I still get drunk, but I don't do this anymore. But I would... Uh, I, as a kid, I had learned life saving. So I learned how to carry people who were heavier than you. So I'd, I would always pick people up in bars and, and carry them around and dance around. And so they're sweeping us out. And it's just my, my friend who married Liza and Liza and me and my wife, Ronnie. And, um, and it's uh, Farrah Fawcett and Ryan O'Neill, who are a couple at this point. And and at one point I had walked into a bedroom and Ryan O'Neill was, had the biggest amount of Coke you've ever seen in front of him. And he was hoovering it up. And I said, Hey man, can I have some? He said, Oh, I don't have enough. And I was like, what? Well, so anyways, he judging, was, judging from every story from that time frame, he didn't have enough. He definitely needed more than that. <laughs> Could be. But anyways, so, so I couldn't find my jacket. I had some, it was a nothing jacket, like a windbreaker. And I'm going all around the house and I'm yelling at who stole my jacket and all that shit. And uh, Farrah Fawcett comes out of the bathroom with a black windbreaker and says, is this your jacket? And I'm like, fuck. And I go and I grab her and I throw her up on my shoulder and I start running around the house, all their, their marble floors of the apartment, just charging. And I came and, and Ryan is like, uh, my friend uh, Mark, the husband of Liza is going, Hey, hey, Duncan, come on, come on, come on. And Ryan says to him, Ryan makes himself kind of the emergency commander on the scene and says, no, 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 don't, don't, don't interfere because he's afraid I'm going to jump out the window with her. I don't know what he's <laughs> afraid of, but he made it way more dramatic than it had to be. So I came around the apartment and I came around back near the front door again and I grabbed Liza and I had, so I had Liza and Farrah Fawcett <laughs> each on my shoulders and I'm jumping and dancing. I'm trying to make it look as scary as possible and, uh, and running around the apartment. And, and Ryan is going to try to talk me down. And, uh, and finally, I just I, I deposited the ladies back and, and left. <laughs>
Well, just yeah, yeah. just think of the the impact it would have had if you had jumped out the window with two of the icons <laughs> of the moment, Farrah Fawcett, who that would have you know been a, a moment for mourning for straight men everywhere, and obviously yeah. Liza, that would have been something for gay men everywhere. So you, no one would have liked you, you know, if, if you I had uh, harmed either of them. Oh, oh, yeah, but I could have been you know I could have been the Lee Harvey Oswald of my <laughs> of my moment there. Uh, my name would live on. Uh, so. Anyways, oh God, that story goes on. There's, there's even a coda to it, but I'll spare yeah, you. Yeah, please, you don't, you don't need to spare me. But uh, it's, uh, yeah, no, I just, I, I love the idea. Like if, if that story is from any era and those people are there, it's, uh, you know, I mean, I've been at a couple of things where there's a handful of famous people. And honestly, it's because my wife's a TV writer and I've gotten to go to the Emmys. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, to be at somebody's home where, the, you know, especially in an age where you don't have to worry about being filmed and everything. Yeah, I can only imagine. So uh, yeah. I, I love that story. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I know that your book, Loudmouth, is a fictionalized account of your time in the music industry. But how much of it is factual? factual? Are there yeah. celebrities in it? Or uh, talk a little bit about how Loudmouth uh, came to be. Oh, I went through a really, I went through a weird thing where I, I, I so I started, somehow started this kind of automatic writing. And I was just writing every day and night. I'd be writing at work and somebody would come ask me to do something and I would just curse them out because I'm, I'm like, fuck it, I'm writing my book, leave me alone. And, and well, I didn't know it was a book. I was just writing these stories and I kept going. And uh, after about 13 months, I, um, I'm like, what is all this shit? Because it was all disparate stories. And I thought, and I put it all down on the floor and I thought, well, if I took out this story and I added a story here to bridge this gap, I would have a kind of uh, a memoir of sorts. Uh, but, uh, and so that's what I did. I started writing new things to fill in and just, and started. And then I decided, well, fuck making this a memoir because it's, I don't want to have to be held to remembering things accurately. And I know memoir that you've got a little fudge room, but but yeah, uh, no, so because said, Al Pacino's lawyers might contact you and say, no, he looked like he was 16 that day. So we'll see you in court, sir. You know, yeah, well, that that, that um, Liza story isn't in. I, I had it in an earlier edition of the oh. manuscript. And I thought, well, that's not rock and roll. You know, fuck it. I don't. You <laughs> it's know. true. It's a good story. So I yeah. try to include any decent story that had the, the most tenuous relationship to uh, to rock and roll. But uh, so. So then it, it, I started shaping it and, uh, and uh, I, I decided, okay, there's going to be people really not happy about their portrayal in here. So I'll change names. So it, it turned sure. into a novel. But, you know, I remember when there was novels like, you know, On the Road and everybody knew who the, this guy was Allen Ginsberg and yeah. that guy was that guy. And, you know, so you knew, the names had been changed, but you didn't, you didn't, who cares? So I decided that the modern reader wouldn't give a shit if it was a fictionalized version. And it's not, you know, it covers, a, um, <laughs> here's the caveat. It covers, there's a lot of rock and roll stuff in it and rock star, actual named rock stars and, and other people. And some of them I had to change their names. Sure. But there's also stuff from my childhood early on. And I had a weird, wacky childhood with a kind of a crazy Southern Gothic and spent a lot of time in Memphis and so I was kind of you know knocking at the door of rock and roll in, in those days I had a crazy wild half brother older much older half brother who came to us you know when I was like seven or eight he arrived and he was like 15 or 16 and he eventually he had this made the created this hot rod and he was he became a hot rod gang leader he had guns he had a machine gun bed which of course when you're a seven and eight year old you're you're wandering around you're, that's the place you go is you go under people's beds so I found the guns and I couldn't carry anything I could carry only the pistol so I took that up to my mother hey mommy look <laughs> <laughs> and uh but but I remember you know driving in the back roads of Minnesota going it seemed like 80 miles an hour but with with uh, Elvis doing hound dog out just blasting from the the dashboard and that was my introduction to rock and roll so you know it, it was a, it was about five or so years before I would actually then 
uh, go on to buy records and shit like that. But uh, so I had, it's, it's funny, I had, a, I have a connection to the very earliest days and to later days. That's interesting. And I, I think that, uh, you know, it just sort of depends on exactly how old somebody is because they have either an Elvis story or a Beatles story, sometimes both, you yeah. know, uh, and, uh, I have and, both. I saw the Beatles. At what point did you see them? I know that they obviously stopped touring what in 66, but yeah, uh, when, when did you see them? Six. Oh, wow. second to the last show I saw them at, um, at Shea stadium. And, uh, and I went with my little, friend and his 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 father was kind of an Irish mafia kind of guy and he got us he got us into the press box at the Beatles show there was no press there by the way yeah that's how just you know that it just didn't fit into mainstream press uh, going to a rock concert in those days so we were the only people in in the press box my friend and I and our two first dates Um, you would think that would have meant more to the dates but it didn't seem to no they yeah we they, were like 12 years old or something yeah they they got to they got to be in the in in the same building as uh, as john and paul and you know george and ringo as well but yeah let's uh, let's be honest as to you know what the hierarchy was you can flip the one and two but uh if, if somebody told you Ringo was their favorite, they were probably lying. Uh, and, uh, and I like Ringo. It's nothing about that. It's just, you know, a <laughs> 12-year-old girl isn't going to be like, oh, yeah, Ringo's my favorite. It, it, it's interesting because uh, the Beatles as a live act, I mean, none of those recordings sound particularly good. And it's also sort of the, the earlier, you know, really their earlier material. Like, it's all pre-Rubber Soul, you know? So it's like the stuff that you, you know, you can, you can find Hendrix doing Sgt. Pepper like the week after it came out. But yeah. uh, other than the, the, I guess the rooftop at, uh, at at Apple Records or at Abbey Road is is kind of like the only thing that they did late in the career. So, yeah, it's just you don't. It's funny because you don't meet a lot of people. I I only saw McCartney perform for the first time like I don't know four years ago, and uh, right, he's still still great. And uh, I am uh, I'm a a very avid oh, I'm, I'm a very avid meat eater. But there's something to be said when you're 74 and you can do a three hour concert and run around like he does and go, hmm, maybe there's something to being a vegetarian. I didn't learn the lesson that I'm going to give it a try, but you know, maybe right. other people might want to. So it, it's interesting because- and he fits into his old, he fits into his old stage clothes. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a great point. And obviously working in, in rock magazines, you're going to yeah. have some very different kind of assignments. You know, you'll write uh, on Kiss, and I think that for a lot of people, at least, uh, especially of a of a certain era, it can be very eclectic. Some of our tastes. I'm speaking of me personally. I did grow up really liking the music of Kiss, but because I grew up in in New York State, but it's this the really rural suburbs, like a, like four miles from where I grew up was New Jersey. This little tiny town called Greenwood Lake, which is an old resort town, and so I grew up hearing Bruce Springsteen all the time. And uh, so I, I can say that, sure, I love Kiss, but also I have a, a tremendous respect for Springsteen. And I know that uh, you did a profile on him around the same time you did the Kiss book, right? And that's actually in, uh, yeah. in there. So I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on, on Bruce. Obviously, that's another 45 years in his career since then. But again, right. that moment in time, sitting down with, you know, that's what, even before the river. That's like a very specific moment of Bruce Springsteen's career that you got to talk to him. And I was kind of wondering yeah. what that was like and, and what kind of your enduring memories are from that. So we got, kind of got to be friends. And uh, it was the darkness tour that I, I wrote that profile that was, and I thought, okay, this, I think this is the best thing I ever wrote. He was a great interview. I interviewed a million people. I remember going to interview Aerosmith, uh, Stephen and Joe back in the day, and they were just so high and it, they were so silly and it was just like so useless uh worst interview i ever did was journey it was like all right i can't even write this fucking story this is just these guys are so dull that before steve perry uh and uh but but bruce was great he was a great interview his shows were great so it was 1978 we i, I got to go on the bus from houston to new orleans to uh jackson mississippi and so it had all that, it was summer and it had all that Southern flavor. It was so atmospheric to be in New Orleans with that band and, and 
the way they respected New Orleans. And we went to um, Ernie Cato's bar and he performed for us. And it was just, it was fantastic. So I wrote this story for Cream and, and I thought, okay, that's like the best thing I've written. <clears throat> And, and then it, later it got anthologized and, and all this stuff. But the, after I wrote it, um, and Bruce and I became friends. And I remember he invited me down the shore and I was too, I, I thought, oh, I don't know. I didn't have any, I didn't have, first of all, I didn't have money for the train or the <laughs> bus or anything. So I did not go. But I wrote this story for Cream. And when it came out, we went, Bruce was doing his first date at Madison Square Garden. So it was a big kind of homecoming thing. And they had we were all going to meet with him afterwards and we're back in this they've got us kind of in this employee cafeteria pretty big place in the garden somewhere in the bowels of the garden and there's all these rock stars and politicians and just just fancy rich people and just a big crowd everybody's going to get on the Springsteen bandwagon in New York and Springsteen comes down after the show and he walks in this big room full of people and he sees us way in the back. We're at the fucking back wall table. And he walks across the room past all the politicians and rich people and rock stars and sat down at the table and said, I, I just got to tell you, he says, that was the best story uh, written about me since Landau wrote The Future of Rock. So, but I, I'll wow. just never forget. Uh, so I'll, everybody's like, who the fuck are those people? <laughs> So, yeah. So, Bruce, so yeah. we became we became friends and 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 uh, friendly, you know. Yeah, sure. Um, I was always skeptical of rock star friendships, but but in the book, um, there's a there's a story. Again, it's one of the ones that people think seem like bullshit, or the ones that are tr absolutely factual. And there's a big there's a bracket, a beginning and end thing with with Bruce, and that's almost exactly as it happened. Uh, driving around Cleveland with the a maniac friend of mine I told Bruce invited me down to Cleveland to show and we and I got this crazy friend of mine uh to come to live there to give us a tour and so we're driving around in this junker car in the afternoon in Cleveland and and uh it was it was a great afternoon and so and that's so, that's the intro to the book. and so that story's in <laughs> Loudmouth the uh which that story is the intro to Loudmouth right and uh yeah. it's it, also the closing kind of the outro <laughs> And uh, the book will be uh, published, I think, in the fall is what the, the notes said. So if people, uh, obviously, you can always pre-order. You can uh, pre-order everything these days. Uh, and uh, Yeah, pre-order it because you, they'll forget. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't pre-order it now and you can go, if you like, um, if you can go to if you corporate bookselling, you can go to Amazon. You can go to bookshop.org, which is a consortium of indies. And, and there's it's it's all, I've got all the links on my the site, which is DuncanWrites.com, and there's a tab for buy, P-U-Y. But Duncan writes like rights. Like rights, like. yeah. Well, and, and you know, that reminds me of, uh, you know, something that uh, you were talking about the way that you started writing, and it was just kind of regurgitating all these ideas. And you mentioned uh, On the Road, and what I always thought was fascinating about that book, and because, you know, I, look, I read that book at a very impressionable age. I was probably like 13 or 14. So, it, you know, it's, it's an interesting book, but it seems so important to you if you read it at that age. But just the idea that he would use scotch tape and tape pages together so that he could keep typing without having to flip the page. I'm like, oh, I like that. And, you know, uh, I, I, I always like the, the idea of writing like that. You know, I mean, now we don't have to worry about it, but uh, this this was a guy who invented yeah. his own word processor, you know? I have a funny story about that, two seconds. My my wife, who has is a, been a rock, she's an artist, but she's also did rock photography, met a lot of people, but she also came from out in Coney Island, Brooklyn, and she had a, 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 boy, a guy, in, a slightly older guy in high school who was, his family was like gangsters and all this stuff. And he, he was always, shit was always happening around him. And he was, and he pursued her ardently. He, he's still around and he still pursues her. And, but one day he brought over to her house that scroll from on the road and as, he wanted to stash it under her bed. Wow. And it was, it, to this day, she's not sure where he got it, how he <laughs> got it, but eventually he came back and, and took it. Uh. it uh, I think I have a story about it in the book. Oh yeah, I made up that Jack came to get it. But uh, uh, the truth is, 
so she really did have the scroll that scroll that you're talking about that's crazy that that she had it and um gave it back you know i think that shows yeah. <laughs> that well, shows restraint yeah. like, and this guy was like she's like oh shit you know no i'm gonna be arrested well, uh, Robert, it has, uh, it, it's been uh, a lot of fun to just hear these stories. And uh, if the, these are any indication of uh, what we can get from the book, I think everybody should make sure that they check out Loudmouth. And you said it's Duncan Wrights, W-R-I-T-E-S uh, dot com. Right. That's where dot they can com. find everything. And, yeah, uh, that's pre-order. where you can get the links to pre-order. Yeah, right. So that means that literally right now, before I finish this sentence, you could just click on a button and order it. So you might as well do that right now, you know? Don't wait. Don't wait till October 5th. Why would you do that to yourself? Right? (laughs) Robert, thank you so much. Uh, I do really appreciate it. uh, And good luck with the book. And uh, I look forward to uh, having an occasion to talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Well, I hope so. Thank you, Christian. Thanks again to Robert Duncan. The book will be called Loudmouth. And it is, as we discussed, already available for pre-order. Just go to Duncan Wrights, W-R-I-T-E-S dot com. I mentioned this to him. I know my boss, Dennis Miller, would love chatting with him, especially for that Liza Minnelli story. So I'm sure you'll be hearing that very story on the Dennis Miller option in early October, right over there on Westwood One. And if you're a fan of that show, the Dennis Miller option, don't forget, we're having our live call-in episode Wednesday, September 9th at 11 a.m. Pacific. That is indeed 2 p.m. Eastern. And if you're an old-time fan of the radio show, it'll even be the same number, 866-509-RANT. That's 866-509-7268. You know, Robert and I recorded that conversation Friday, August 14th, which was literally one of the hottest days of the year, both here in Los Angeles and also up there in the Bay Area where he lives. I think it was 104 that day. We definitely had some issues with our connection all the way throughout. Not as bad as our recent interview with uh, Frank Hannon, where we couldn't even use the cameras, but this still wasn't great. We actually got completely disconnected, and Robert had to reset his router, and I needed to cut all that out. I wanted to pretend that I was a professional, so that seamlessly, you'd hear the interview all the way straight through, so you'd never know that it happened, unless, of course, you watch the video. But, because I love the Black Hats Nation, I'm going to peel back the curtain and let you hear just how much it threw me and what a horrendous job I did vamping while I was hoping he would magically pop back into the Zoom room, which he didn't. (laughs) I had to stop the recording. I had to text with him about when we would be able to reconnect. Not in that recording or the second recording or any of the recordings is how also my babysitter needed to leave. It was her time to go home. So I had to go downstairs and it was her last day. So the kids wanted to give her a card. There were hugs. Lucy needed to tell her that she loves her, which was interesting because I was just like, I didn't even know you liked her. Uh, All the while, uh, I'm waiting to plop them right down in front of the TV so I can run back upstairs to finish this interview. All for you, for Black Cast Nation. Of course, after I finished it, then I had to take them to the dentist, but uh, that's probably a story for another time. Maybe all of this was a story for another time or no time, but uh, one... I hope you appreciate this look behind the scenes. Then to the episode is a little short, as you probably noticed. So I needed to fill it with all this over explanation. Uh, You will hear all that in a moment. But if you're listening to this episode today, Tuesday, August 18th, then let me clue you in on something that you'll be able to find tomorrow, Wednesday, August 19th, 2 p.m. Pacific over there on the Blackcast YouTube channel. It's a little outdoor patio lunchtime video chat with myself and the one and only Salmon David Weiss. Got a question for Salmon and I? Please tweet me at ChristianDMZ or Blackcast, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. Now, if you're listening to this after the fact, you can still find it over there on the Blackcast YouTube channel anytime. And I suspect that conversation will be either all of or at least part of Blackcast 396. When you hear a number like that, you know episode 400 is lurking off in the distance and that is coming soon and we should have an announcement coming to you soon but not now probably sometime in september we'll let you know what we're doing that's the future and in the future we'll see you next time on the podcast i had a crazy wild half brother older much older half brother 
who I remember riding around in his, you know, it's a little bit of a bad connection right there. You froze right in the middle of that, but uh, I like to think he'll come back. Can always uh, have him uh, come out for a second and then we'll come back and we'll see what happens. Uh, that was a little bit of a tenuous connection there, but uh, I hope that uh, we're able to get Robert back. And obviously we're talking to Robert Duncan and the book is called Loudmouth. Uh, it is a novel and uh, it's a fictionalized version of uh, his life. And uh, well, he was there. <laughs> I was trying to bring him back in. And uh, that was a very tenuous connection, which uh, is uh, certainly the kind of thing that happens. And again, the book is called Loudmouth and his name is uh, Robert Duncan. I really wanted to make sure that I got to that uh, Liza Minnelli story. There's so much more I want to talk to him about. So I do hope that he jumps back in. Uh, I uh, was just trying to put him in the waiting room. I deliberated on whether or not I should do that because then he was gone and now he's like gone for real. So uh, I just hope he come, he does come back in uh, at uh, some point in the near future. But uh, if not, I can always let people know that uh, the, if they want more Blackcast, I will always give them more Blackcast. You can go to blackcast.com, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T.com. And of course, like the Blackcast on Facebook, and of course on Twitter at B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. We are indeed the Black Cast. And if you want to follow me just one-on-one -on -one, at Christian DMZ, that's Twitter. That is also Instagram. I'm not on any of those other things. I don't know that uh, TikTok's going to be around much longer. So I feel like I should respect my decision to stay away from uh, TikTok at this point. But in any case, uh, if you are watching this, if you're seeing the video version, you're on the Black Cast YouTube channel, and you may have noticed it over there at the Black Cast YouTube channel. We have added uh, a few other shows. I finished out the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. after show that I was doing for AfterBuzz TV before they went on hiatus. And I've got sort of a new iteration of Marvel Movie News, a show, that, show <laughs> it's a shoe too, a show that I was doing there for a little while. Uh, which was, of course, the, uh, the it is now called uh, Marvel Movie Talk. Well, uh, unfortunately, I vamped for a while and did not get Robert back, which is very unfortunate because uh, we had a few more minutes together and uh, I did want to uh, tie that all together. But uh, I will hopefully be able to record more of the interview sometime in the near future. And again, uh, our guest has been, possibly will continue to be Robert Duncan. The book is called Loudmouth. So uh, hopefully uh, I do get to talk to him more in the near future. And you mentioned uh, that your own childhood, there were uh, some yeah, adventures. Yeah. Wacky, wacky childhood. I had, you know, Southern Gothic parents who were, who could be quite, strange it's in the book and uh but but i had an older half brother who came to us you know when i was like seven or eight he arrived and he was like 15 or 16. <laughs>